Good morning. Welcome to the Sativa segment. I am your host, Richard Chang. We are filming episode six today. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge uh, that Dads at Peace is the organization that's fueling this episode. Uh, Dads at Peace is a men's resource center that's based here in Dallas, Texas. If you want to find out more, you can certainly look them up um, on Facebook. Uh, just type in Dads at Peace and you can find them on Facebook. Uh, before we get started, um, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm wearing my um, Power Biofarms uh, t-shirt, courtesy of um, the Power Biofarms team. Welcome. Thank you very much for having us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Um, do you mind just introducing yourselves? Sure. I'm uh, Colt Power, founder and CEO of Power Biofarms. I am Nick Williams, the director of agriculture. And what about? And I am Stephanie Hastings, and I'm the marketing director. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. It's a cold morning. morning it's good to it be is here. It's a very it's cold a little morning. Chilly. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's it's very rare here in Texas too that we get some snow, but we do see some flurries. Um, well, I mean, thank you for making the time to come on the show. Um, Colt, why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about how you got started in the cannabis industry, why you started uh, Power Biofarms. Um, tell us how you got into it. Sure. Um, it, it was a, uh, the plant really helped me a lot. I grew up uh, as an athlete through my childhood, played sports through, through high school and into college and uh, played Division one lacrosse, and through that, I, I injured my knee pretty badly, uh, along with my neck a little bit, but um, wanted to stay healthy as I got into adulthood and really wasn't able to work out consistently without my knee swelling up until I found CBD. Um, after that, started working for me and really kind of changed things. I, I learned more about the, the plant and um, other things that it could help people with, and uh, right around that same time, uh, COVID hit and, and definitely put the career I had been uh, working in for, for 10 years um, on hold to a certain extent. And coincidentally, as well as right when Texas opened up licensing for hemp growing. So uh, all the things kind of came together at all the right time. And uh, I'd, I'd been moved to, been drawn to entrepreneurship since I was a kid. Okay. Um, and yeah, this just everything came together and, and this really called me and I never would have seen it coming, I guess, until it, it was the most important thing I felt like I had to do. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here um, because some of my guests who come on, they, they kind of grew up in the legacy market or they grew up uh, around the plant in some way or fashion. Is that something that was part of your childhood or is that something that it was relatively new and you thought, you know, um, I, I appreciate the medicinal benefits of it. I see some advantages of, uh, of this plant and how it can help the, help the community. Tell me about what your thoughts are when you first um, got engaged, right? Sure. Well, I definitely, you know, at, with my focus on my athletic career growing up, I was terrified of, of, of getting in trouble. So really, weed or, or, other, uh, or other drugs was never on, on the radar. I'd be lying if I didn't say I didn't try it a couple of times in high school for sure. But sure. I think is, uh, it made me very anxious because I was so worried about what it could do my athletic career um and so i didn't find it until that wasn't a concern anymore and i think since i've learned what i have now i wish it could be available to more athletes and and more more people and i think it was um i think just really eye-opening yeah i guess i guess almost a frustration that, that it's something that was that was hidden uh from before yeah how, how did the um the cannabinoid based products help you did it alleviate pain or did it um provide a soothing feeling that you thought 
come. This is something that I want to create for myself. At first, it was it was really just just knocking down the swelling. My knee injury is one where it doesn't doesn't really hurt acutely if I'm doing what it what inflames it. Uh, it's just the next day I'll wake up and it's so swollen I can barely walk. And once I started regularly consuming CBD, that stopped happening. I could work out hard, wake up the next day. It wasn't swollen. I could do it again. Once I, like I said, learned more and started to consume other cannabinoids, I've learned that THC, I think, is, is an amazing, uh, has amazing potential for, for athletic performance as well. I mean, I, I use THC before I do cardio every morning, and I think there's really something to be said for that, which I'd say is, is kind of going out on a limb with, mm-hmm. the, with the stigma of it uh, looking backwards. But that's, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential. Wow. So you use THC before you work out. Mm-hmm. So help me understand um, how THC has enhanced your workout or why do you use THC before you work out? I've, I, because I've never thought about that. Sure. It, um, so I guess kind of going back to when, it, when I started everything and decided to dive in, I've always been the type of person that like I feel moved to something and then I'm going to research it and understand it as much as I can. And I went deep when I was getting started on all this reading um, medical journals and, and different studies and things about what the plant can do, you know, mm-hmm. despite where, whatever or not the, the approvals are at the federal level, um, the science clearly is there and, and, the, and the benefits are there. And the more I learned about the way it interacts with uh, your body through the endocannabinoid system, a lot of it's the same chemistry that happens when you exercise. And so I, I'm convinced through what I've learned and through my anecdotal experiences that you're kind of almost jump starting that runner's high. And it helps alleviate pain. It helps loosen the joints a little bit and kind of gets you to that more comfortable feeling like you've already been exercising for 15 or 20 minutes. And, and especially dealing with some of the injuries that, that linger or just, just general stiffness um, or kind of the, the your body telling you maybe you don't want to work out this morning uh, right. when, when you know you need to. I think it, it gets you in that place very quickly and it, and it seems to be very effective. I, I would say it's probably not for everything. I wouldn't say everyone should consume THC and go do whatever they want. But I, I, I get on the bike, like a Peloton bike. It's very controlled. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not like, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's very controlled. And in that, in, that, in that application, it seems to work very well. Do you have a preference between like a gummy or a tincture? I work out first thing in the morning when I wake up. And yep. so a cart is, is a, a vape cart. It seems to be the most um, efficient way and uh, to get into my system. And it, and it yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gummy would just take too long, I guess. Yeah. So much of the endocannabinoid system is um, still being explored, right? Definitely. They're finding out um, different types of cannabinoids. It's having different effects all the time and more research. I, I've always said that we've just barely scratched the surface of what other stuff can do. Um, I've spoken with friends who are in med school and they have probably no more than 30, 40 minutes of education on the right. endocannabinoid system. Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, the first time I heard that someone would do that, it was one of my friends and from commercial real estate, it was another broker. And he said, he wakes up every morning and smokes and then goes to orange theory. One of the, like, you know, the workout gyms. And when he told me that, I was like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that sounds irresponsible. And then having tried it, I'm like, no, that, that might be, that might, there's really something to that. I think. Yeah. And, and, uh, I did, I did a hike of, um, Pike's peak over the summer and, and used myself kind of as an experiment there. And I'd, I'd read about a biker kind of doing a similar thing in France where mm-hmm. he, where he like did a video blog as he rode, like, I think it was like a hundred miles every day for 20 days or something like using cannabis throughout that whole time. No kidding. Um, but on my hike, I, I hiked Pikes Peak 
and use it anytime my foot would start to hurt or my knee would start to hurt through the hike, I would I would dose again and it it just put me back into the zone and nothing hurt and I don't know. You know, several years ago, I uh, I went hiking to um, uh, in Utah, and the person that was hiking with me, um, this person was consuming the entire time. I never knew it, but apparently, it really helped. This person. So I was definitely taking that approach. I wasn't letting anyone else know in our group. I was at the back of the line because it uh, it's taken some time to feel comfortable saying it out loud. But I think as as things progress and as we learn more, and there doesn't seem to be risks associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other than maybe certain activities, like I was saying, you might might not want to be doing some of the decision making. Yeah. Now, Nick, your your um, Colts uh, right expert man, I guess expert grower, right? Yes, sir. So yes, sir. T- tell me a bit, a little bit about how you got into growing. How did you become essentially the expert farmer of of the group? So initially, I had gotten into it with my father. My father, when I was 16, I I went up and lived with him in North Carolina. Okay. And he just asked me if I wanted to grow some weed in a closet. Okay. You know, and that's that's literally how I got started. And then I I basically, over the last, you know, 20 years, have just taught myself mainly everything about it. And I was actually about to start a microgreens business whenever COVID started. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think after the whole COVID situation, that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to find the work, you know, in this industry. And that's when I found Colt. You know, I'm trying to think back um, on all the episodes I've done. Mm -hmm. I think you might be the first person that's like the designated cultivation expert on the show. Yeah. So this is my one opportunity to start asking some really Mm -hmm. uh, interesting cultivation questions. Yeah, of course, of course. You know, I I don't know as much about cultivation as, you know, as, you know, uh, people are in the industry. So when you, when you grow hemp, is your approach different than when, if you were to grow, um, say marijuana? Um, so basically, no, it's almost exactly the same. It's just a different seed. The concentration okay. of the cannabinoids is different inside the seed. So in the genetics, mm-hmm. you know, of the seed, it, it's that's the only thing that's different. But it's exactly the same. Okay. Equipment relatively the same? Everything's the same. Yeah. Same okay. equipment, the same, almost the exact same grow temps, CO2, all the things like that. Now, same how do you manipulate um, cannabinoid um I guess the, the level of cannabinoids in, in, in your, in your plants. Well, you, so you don't really manipulate them so much. You just give them, you know, that, that optimal growing, like the okay. um, parameters of the rooms and things like that to get the highest concentration you can get. But the majority of all of that is all already based into the genetics of that seed before you even pop the seed. Okay. That's why they have, you know, all the COAs and things like that to tell you what's in that flower. So that like future growers or breeders or anything like that know what's in that seed already. So what you're saying is um, the the genetics is it's already predisposed on what is going to be potentially be achieved. Yes, All sir. you're doing is you're creating an environment the so that it can maximize its 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 achievement. Yes, sir. That's okay. exactly right. Um, do you is there is it is it expensive to to manage water light? Tell me a little bit about that. So water's not too bad. Things like that, but. You know, the initial like upfront cost of like buying the lights and using um, the newer technology of like LED lights now, as opposed to the high pressure sodium lights, which are much cheaper, but they're a lot higher to run them and maintain them. They're a lot more expensive. They run hotter. So you, you use a lot more air conditioning and things like that. Mm, So it's, 
it's the initial cost yeah is pretty bad but it's it's not once you get going it's not too bad so what's the biggest killer to the plant well i mean what can really like just really... oh it's definitely bugs Pests. bugs Pests. okay and how do you control those bugs um so we actually spray two to three times a week and you have to like rotate which pesticides insecticides fungicides whatever you use we use a lot of omri listed all organic you know fungicides that attack the plants and attack the um the pest on the plants okay. and a lot of systemics like that but um yeah it, it can it's usually the pest that it's the worst problems okay so you know I'm curious because, and this may be a, a combo Nick and Colt question, how did you decide on an indoor grow versus going somewhere else to do outgrow, outdoor grow, et cetera? A um, couple drivers for that. I mean, definitely. It could be financial, right? Sure. sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, the logistical side, my dad grew up uh, uh, on a farm in Mississippi and okay. uh, I'd heard enough horror stories of, of the the woes of outdoor farming and being subject to mother nature and uh, i think texas is no less uh, ominous than mississippi i, I, I couldn't I, I don't know no matter what the crop i really uh, don't know that i'd be comfortable banking a, a large operation behind it i mean we need outdoor farmers i don't mean to talk it down that's just not my risk appetite sure um but the indoor side too i feel like i'm i really love the the fact that that is the way to make the most consistent product, the mm -hmm. highest quality. Well, it's a controlled environment. Completely controlled right. environment. You know, it's, it's you versus yourself to a certain extent. You know, yep. any problem you have, you're responsible for much more than, than outdoor. Um, yep. You know, and I think it's, you get to every cycle, every harvest, push efficiencies and figure out, okay, if we, what, what can we tweak to get a higher yield, to get a higher cannabinoid content? What can we do to, um, you know, decrease water usage or, and all those things I, I looking at it as kind of a, a, a cultivation based manufacturing operation um, with all the controls being in our court, I thought was, was both appealing um, functionally, but also financially too. Okay. It is more expensive, but more controlled. And Nick, from a grower's perspective, do you, do you have a preference between one or over the other? So mine would be for the quality, the quality you're going to get from indoor compared to the outdoors, just okay. it's night and day difference. You know, unless you're in like some places like Humboldt County where they have like perfect outdoors, you know, real nice, sunny, things like that. The temperature is great for that stuff. You know, I, I do have another question. I, it just it just dawned on me. So in Texas, as you we all know, it's it's really big. right? Mm -hmm. So you have um, the hill country, you have some very desert like conditions. When you're in the valley, it's really hot. When you're in West Texas, it's really dry. Do those environments, is that an optimal environment to grow hemp? So for it to be that hot and dry, no, it's not okay. very optimal for it, no. Because it's the actual, the hot temperatures and the, the, the dryness can actually lead to some of the plants actually hermaphroditing and, and the females will throw pollen sacs and things like that. No kidding. So it can, okay. it can actually stress the plants out worse. And the increased temperature also affects the cannabinoid level, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Mm -hmm. The and THC the density, level, density yeah. of the flower too. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Okay, well let's let's shift over to Stephanie. Um, Stephanie, you're the company's 
uh, marketing experts. Yeah, yeah that's, okay. what, that's what they call me anyway. Yeah. That's what they call. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, tell me about how you got into this particular space because I would imagine you probably did some level of marketing or sales in a, in another in, oh, industry. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I've got about fifteen years of front facing experience. Okay. You know, got my start as a journalist and did radio and all that kind of fun stuff. And I've and I've done marketing for a lot of industries. But um, eleven years ago, actually, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm almost fifty, so I'm the oldest. I'm the old head in this group. But, um, you know, I grew up a good little dare kid, but when I turned 38, I got stage three breast cancer. And um, really much like Colt, I became a kind of a student of the disease, really did a lot of research. And there's a lot of research on my particular type of breast cancer and cannabis and so on. And so I just asked my oncologist at the oncology planning appointment uh, when we were going over the plan, how he felt about cannabis, you know, consuming it to help just get through chemo or whatever. And, you know, this was before hemp, this was 2011. So he, you know, obviously had to kind of tiptoe around the subject, but ultimately he said, none of us will tell you not to, because we all know it works. And, um, he instructed me to wait three days after my first chemo round to make sure I could handle chemo and then go ahead and use my, as he air quoted, homeopathic remedy. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that was my introduction into cannabis. I had, hadn't slept or ate in three days, and I had my first. I'd be shown how to use a, a bong. I had to be shown how to do it, and okay. um, and instantly rested. And then I woke up, and my first thought was, "Oh wow, I'm hungry. I really want a steak right now." And it was uh. as I was woofing down this food um, with great excitement that it just kind of hit me that the reason why I was able to do this, the reason why I was resting and eating, was because I have this plant because I'd taken my first hit of cannabis and it's been in my life ever since I became really passionate about it at that point um because you see in real time for yourself how it makes a difference and and yeah been talking about it ever since you know and I got in touch with I met uh Colt and his wife they had a booth at the Texas Hemp Convention a little over a year ago and met them at the hemp convention and you know we all kind of hit it off and then uh luckily i was able to worm my way into a job so <laughs> you know you know they can't get rid of me now so <laughs> by the way I, I really appreciate your gen x status so like <laughs> you, you. I, i'm a gen xer as well um so obviously you worked in other industries now mm -hmm. were, did you were you a little bit reticent about getting into cannabis or um be, but you know, given your, what you just told me, it sure. doesn't sound like you were, but now we're talking about a job, right? Versus right. just being someone that's, right. you know, maybe exploring the industry. Um, I, I've, I've been very enthusiastic about the plant, you know, ever since I saw it in real time make a difference, you know. Um, it's, it's interesting to be that Gen X dare kid, right? You yeah. know, you were raised on Ron and Nancy telling you to just say no, and yeah. it was a gateway drug and all this other stuff. Um, so really it was... I think I got a little fueled by anger initially, like I've been lied to, you know, <laughs> and uh, and now it's just like it's a, such a mission of, of mine. And I think for us as a farm as a whole uh, to, to because of that medical aspect, because it does help real people. And that's the driver for all of us every day is it's 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 about other people. OK, um, well, let's transition a little bit over to the, the company itself. The company is called Power Biofarms. Right. OK. Who came up with the name? Um, Biofarms was my addition. I, I was getting advice from uh, a couple um, people I consider mentors uh, when I was getting the whole process started and I had a different name. I can't even remember what it was. And he said, if you don't use your last name, you're doing it wrong. And I was like, okay. And so I was like, I'm going to work power into it. And mm -hmm. uh, I definitely wanted the nod to the fact that we are coming at it with a medical intention, medical focus. Um, 
and that was the, the farms with the pH was, was that uh, where that came Got from. It. Okay. Um, yeah. And the bio, I guess, is coming from the plant naturally. Um, so how did you, from what I can tell, your company is, um, I want to say vertically integrated somewhat because you're growing, you're also extracting, are you extracting? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you're also, um, creating your own products. You're, so you're manufacturing mm -hmm. and you're selling. So you're hitting multiple segments on the supply chain, upstream, downstream, midstream, all of it. Um, how, how did you decide to do that versus focusing on one particular um, segment of it? It was definitely an evolution. You know, at the beginning, uh, when I decided I wanted to start something that was going to be in this space, I, I waffled back and forth between being a processor extraction lab and a farm. Um, really fell in love with the plant the more I learned about it and, and then initially decided we're going to do the farm. I actually started growing. I got a license when they first came out. Um, registered my house as a, as a location that was approved under the program and got up to maybe, I don't know, 60 or 80 plants in my media room upstairs in tents. Um, okay. And so I, like I said, trying to learn as much as I can, I wanted hands-on experience and um, started to really enjoy and, and feel energized by the grow side and uh, decided to build a business around that. And then with, um, you know, changes in the landscape, seeing what products were selling in the market and, and what was moving well, I, I thought it would be advantageous to add more of the vertical integration, capture some of those opportunities and, uh, and kind of cost benefits through it. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. Uh, at the same time, too, I mean, we have intentions of becoming a fully licensed medical cannabis provider at some point in the future. And I knew that Texas was looking to organizations that did it all in-house. And so I figured no better way to, to start on that journey than start on that journey, start doing all of that. Sure. I mean, I can imagine that's, um, it's a little bit more um, uh, financially impactful at the beginning because you're looking at hitting multiple segments of the market. You're putting more resources. Now, are, is your group capital backed by anybody? Or is it just um, purely you? It's been friends, family, and, and my wife and I to this to this point. Um, you know, with that being said, it is a very very capital intensive business, and we've kind of constantly been on the hunt for for additional additional backing. Uh, yeah. Some some of it some of what we've done to date kind of has been a proof of concept to 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 attract future investment. Um, but uh, yeah. So, what's your mission? What's what's the mission of the company? Uh, to be a vertically integrated provider of top notch, high quality cannabis products, ideally within the, within the medical space. Tell me some about your products. What, what exactly do you, what does um, Power Biofarms make? We make a wide range of products at the moment. Um, you know, I think our, our gummies and tinctures and uh, pet products are some of our most popular. Okay. Um, we also make uh, bath bombs. Um, we put our, have our flour put into pre-rolls. Um, else i forget Topical. Topical. Yeah, we, we, have a, we have a muscle balm like a like a salve pet um, yeah pet treats and pet oils um a variety gummies are, are by far our most popular one so you know um a number of years ago i represented um a company out of michigan um and i had a chance to speak with the owner and for whatever reason this stuck in my mind he said that some of his best-selling products and some of the most profitable products are his pet products so tell me a little bit about how you got in, how you decided to go the pet route. Sure. So, I mean, there's obviously I talked about my athletic kind of background and that pushing me and kind of my personal story. And 
for what it's worth, I'll backtrack a second. My, my dad has had 19 orthopedic surgeries. My mom's had MS as well. So that's where some of that medical impetus comes from. And mm -hmm. those are two conditions that benefit greatly from the plant. But I actually had a, a great, I had two great Danes, uh, one of which right when I was starting on this journey, I uh, got a tumor in his head and uh, was inoperable. And he was basically living in a lot of pain. And we, I experimented and came up with that dog treat recipe. Um, using some of the material I had grown in my in my room upstairs and, and kind of went down the research rabbit hole there too. And uh, I, I was amazed at how much it helped him and, and started giving it to our other great Dane too, who's 10 years old now. And she's, Are they little oral treats or? So I made treats first. Yeah, they're little, kind of like, looks like a dog cookie. Okay. It's a little kind of crunchy treat. Um, and I, I made it 15 milligrams each. I feel like most of what I saw in the market was smaller. And, uh, CBD. CBD, correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, with those big dogs, their dosage needed to be higher. I was frustrated having to give the dog like half the bottle of these, these lighter <laughs> right. milligram treats. Uh, those dogs are huge. They're I mean, Great Danes are like, uh, they're like the size of a horse. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. 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 One of them got up to 160 pounds. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. But it, I saw it work. And, um, you know, it, it, is, it is a higher margin product. The oils are very simple to make because, you know, that, that's not as much... Um, I guess they're, you want them to really not taste it as I feel like from yeah. what we figured out, we, we experimented with the peanut butter and with the bacon and unflavored where you can just kind of put it on top of the food that they already know and like, mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, the coconut oil or MCT oil carrier, they don't really notice it, but it, it benefits them. Okay. Um, so Nick, tell me about the, the, about all the aspects of growing extraction and manufacturing. Where do you get the seeds or the seedlings? Um, so we actually order, we were ordering from a couple places out of Oregon, Colorado, Washington, you know, some places that already have like a well-established market up there. Now, are they seeds or are they seedlings? These were seeds, yeah. Okay. We, we had ordered clones from a couple places in Colorado, okay. uh, California, okay. from one place, exactly. Yeah. And aphids, we had aphids all over. And it goes back to your whole the bugs clones. thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. bring them in, they're going to stay. Okay. They're, they're, they're making, making a bed, you know what I mean? Right. But, um, we're, we're strictly running clone only now. We don't run any seed right now. Um, we've dwindled down and hunted out the phenotypes that we want. So every seed is going to be different. You know, okay. it's like a snowflake. I'll put it in, in that terms, you know, and everyone's different and we've dwindled down to the one that we want as according to yield terps, taste all of that stuff you know um but yeah we're running strictly clones we take from a couple of moms and that's about it you know we don't run any seed we we will be next year running a few different strains mm -hmm. and pheno hunting those out yeah all the new ones start from seed yeah after, after we learn our lesson with the clones coming in <laughs> yeah the new ones we we pheno hunt with seed but what i've noticed with say the high CBD seeds and the high THC that's already been, you know, in Colorado and California for 20 years. Right. They're, they've been bred out a lot better than say a lot of the CBD genetics. You know, I'm seeing a lot more like hermaphrodites or just small yielding plants and a lot of variations in the plants. You know, it's not like this in the, the THC market from what I'm seeing. Okay. Now, is, is the extraction and manufacturing part, is that a very labor-intensive process, um, or is it a very, uh, very um, capital-intensive process? Tell me a little bit about that. Um, at first, getting the equipment, yeah. That's, okay. that's How much is a piece of equipment? Like? I'd say that, that as far as like capital versus labor, there's kind of like two 
different ways. You have like CO2 and ethanol and, and butane that are very capital intensive, not necessarily as labor intensive, and then uh, solventless um, rosin press, which is much more labor intensive and not as capital intensive. So like a rosin got press, it. we got the top of the line um, commercial press and it's, you know, 10, like $10,000, $12,000, mm-hmm. while kind of an, an entry level CO2 extractor that could do the same kind of throughput would be in the, you know, probably 25000 at best, you know, probably more like fifty. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I mean, cut no, you no, no, you're good. <laughs> but um, yeah, the the extraction part, he, he hit it there with that. Like the pressing it can be labor intensive because you have to, you know, break the flour up, put the flour in the bags, press it, and then you got to pull it all off the parchment paper. But yeah, it's the the extraction part. It it's it's hit and miss depending on which extraction method we're using at the time, depending on what product we're making. Okay. And do you have like a process where you say, well, we're going to process this or it comes out a certain way where you're like, we're going to, we have to dump this. Tell me about how you screen your, oh, yeah. your stuff. So I've gotten a couple, you know, when we, when we harvest some of the plants and stuff like that, cause we're on a perpetual grow right now. So we harvest every two weeks, yep. every two weeks I'm harvesting, um, 112 plants. So we have fresh supply and things like that. But we have had some where the genetics did go a little, you know, haywire on us and and they would seed some of the flour. And yeah, so what we would do is just literally pick the seeds out and we press all of it and we just put it all into, you know, oils or the pet treats or whatever we're going to use it for Mm -hmm. or the gummies, you know. But yeah, we've I've had some. You know, it's not going to go perfectly as planned, especially, you know, I've always done anywhere from up to 250 plants. You know, we're getting up to around 1,200, 1,500 plants now. And it's, there's definitely a learning curve with that, you know. So I'm curious, I mean, have you guys had um, any surveyors from the state of Texas, uh, any any state agency surveyors come out or to um, look at your, uh, your facility? Tell me some good stories on that. <laughs> so we haven't had anyone from the we've ha- we've had have had people from the ag department. They were not there under the hemp program. They actually didn't realize what they were coming into. But yeah. we we have because we we wanted to be able to supply other farms with our genetics since we have moms. Uh, we got a nursery floral license because that's required to be able to sell living plants. Um, I guess within the state commercially. And they inspect all of their, their licensees. I, I don't know if it's annually or biannually, but they, mm-hmm. they, I got a call one morning when I was in the warehouse and they said, Hey, we're here for your inspection. And I was like, Oh, I'm like, look at that. The hemp program is out, is out doing right. inspections. And they right. came in, they're like, Oh, we had, yeah, we don't have anything to do here. They're like, we've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just those, those, I think it was like three employees from TDA and they were like, Oh yeah, we don't do that. And then they just left. Huh. So okay. It was an interesting um, process dealing with the city of Fort Worth, though. You know, being a, an indoor farm going into what was you know previously a distribution warehouse, um, and and it being a new thing that was legal within the state, I was I was really impressed and, and uh, surprised how great to deal with they were. On they basically made a new zoning class, industrial agriculture. Um, did you deal with the city council, or who did you deal with in, in the city? Didn't didn't have to go that high. It was just the zoning inspector. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, not every city is up to speed on stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, many, many municipalities take the not in my backyard attitude, right? A couple told me no. I mean, I, I, I come from commercial real estate. That's what I did 10 years before this. So, uh, 
that was where I added value early to our business was in the site selection kind of leasing process. But yeah, there were a couple of municipalities in the same area that were just mm -hmm. like, no, we're not going to approve that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, in the past, I've advised clients on if you're going to a very specific municipality or township, start creating those relationships with the city council. Start creating um, those, start creating, op opening up the dialogue on um, minimizing any skepticism mm -hmm. and um, that may reduce some of that night in my backyard. But it sounds like for you, um, it was pretty streamlined, and you, you guys um, had a very fortunate run in that Definitely. department. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is is your is your business? This may be a um, question for Stephanie. Is it more B two C or is it B two B for your company? Huh, a valid question. Um, we have uh, a little bit of both. Obviously, you know, we do have some business clients. We have some white label clients that we work with. We have retailers that carry our product. Um, and, but, you know, uh, direct to consumer through the website is, is pretty popular. A lot of people really got into that habit, uh, during COVID ordering from home and, you know, we ship pretty quickly. So people tend to you know, prefer that. Um, but yeah, we do a little bit of both. So your sure. B2C is prime is almost entirely online sales. Correct. Correct. Right. Yeah. Or through, yeah, yeah our retailers. We don't personally have our own retail space, but we do sell through local retailers. Do you ever uh, find yourself um, interacting with uh, biomass brokerage firms to where they want to aggregate um, hemp to, to, to sell it off to third parties? We've been contacted by a decent amount, uh, more so early on. I think they figured out pretty early on that like our, you know, our cost structure and, and kind of volume available wasn't what they were looking for. Um, they're more, more after the, the outdoor grown kind of, kind of prices and, and volumes, but, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and having been on the processor list early in the industry, we got an awful lot of calls of people looking for that, that type of work as well. Yeah. I was surprised by that. It was probably like back in 2019 when I started representing this, um, biomass brokerage company. I didn't even know what it was at the time. And they just said, well, we got your name through, you know, so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And um, they were trying to aggregate about 5 million tons of, uh, of, of hemp, of biomass. And they were essentially piecemealing all these different, from all these different growers. Mm -hmm. And they had a list of all these different um, growers that they, they were trying to contact. And, you know, of course they contacted me for, Throwing up some of the paperwork related to that, but I always found that to be interesting. I, I can imagine aggregating all that biomass, um, and yeah. so when, of course, you guys are growers, and uh, I was just wondering if you had been contacted by uh, like companies like that. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, not as frequently as we used to be. Right. Um, it seems like after the big glut in like 2019, there's like people still sitting on biomass from that big, like when people, I feel like that was the year when the, when growing was the biggest, there were the most farmers doing it kind of nationally, the most production. It seems like the outdoor large scale grow has, has, has scaled back to the people who already have contracts in place. There's, there seems to be less speculative um, production. So the, the dynamic has changed a bit in the market. I think it's, you know, good to note because the way that we're structured, the way that we built our farm because we're indoor grow, because we, you know, it's very people focused, yeah. you know, we care very much about that end consumer. Um, that's why we do things the way we do. Uh, and we don't just run through just a whole bunch of biomass or isolate or whatever. Like some people who start companies, you know, for, for Mr. Power from the very beginning was always very people focused, which is why vertical integration was important. Craft growing with a quality grower was important, you know, because we understand that this is, you know, yeah, it's a fun product for some people, but at the end of the day, it helps real people. So we structured it out to be more 
direct to that person. Yeah. We so, actually, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say we're, we're actually more more likely to be buyers of of material than than mm -hmm. sellers to for extraction. Okay. Um, you know, because we we love being Texas grown, Texas made, and but we don't necessarily want to have to always own our, all of our own cultivation. So we've been mm -hmm. working on kind of building a network of other. Texas farms, in particular indoor farms, that could potentially uh, send biomass our way for, for additional volume. Okay. Um, are, are, I mean, do you anticipate um, that you may go full retail beyond online sales for consumers? We have been approached um, to, to open a retail store by, by someone who wanted to partner with us on doing it. Um, we've kind of toyed, toyed with different different concepts there. I think uh, I think there is a decent chance we, we do at least a uh, kind of flagship store for our brand and see how it goes uh you know no definite timeline but it's definitely not a primary focus or initiative at the moment i, I can see that's something that we will grow into um you know I, I like like i said i like the idea of a flagship something that can really give us a presence and and help people really get to know us in a more fluid way than showing up to our production facility that's not always practical um, but we also like working with other retailers and being able to send product their way and, and not manage you know we're excited about growing, managing, growing, extracting, and manufacturing products, and we're going to leave leave selling to to the people that are out. Uh, I guess that already have the stores in place. Got it. Now, your products right now are entirely a CBD line, right? You're, you're, are you producing any other cannabinoid based products beyond CBD? We have some of the hemp derived uh, THCs. Uh, you you know, do. We do. Yes, okay, sir. and you're selling those as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, give me like Delta Eight. We have Delta Eight products that that um, you know was was one of the first uh, popular gummies that was really a lot of the people that we were already selling CBD products to had interest uh, as they'd seen it become popular in the market. It, you know, when it first popped up, I wasn't sure if it would stick around or not, but obviously it has. Uh, since then, you know, we really do sell a decent amount of the Delta Nine, the hemp derived Delta Nine, the natural THC gummies. Um, are you making HHC or like the THC so, O V or P? So for products? a couple of our white label clients, will we infuse flour and okay. then we send that off and have pre rolls made for them? Got it. But that's, I think we mess with HHC and Delta Eight pre rolls and that's it right now okay. at the moment. And the, and those customers provide their their concentrates that they want used, and so it's kind sure. of a service. Yeah. Is there a particular product that you guys sell that has like? higher profit margins versus um, ones that are, say, lower profit margins on your on your line of your suite of uh, products? Or are they all about the same? Uh, they're they're comparable. I'd say the things like like the pet treats aren't great. That's they're pretty labor intensive, pretty expensive okay. ingredients. Um, uh, that's yeah, probably not a, a top profitability one. Gummies are gummies are pretty are pretty good. Tinctures tinctures are very um, yeah, very a very efficient process once you got your recipe down and mm -hmm. got it. Um, yeah, I'd say uh, some pre rolls can be tough, especially now with the smokable ban, where we have to ship out of state to have them made and then get them back. Tell me about that. Um, tell me about how you that process. Yes, yeah, since the uh, the Supreme Court ruling and they decided to you know specifically target manufacturing as the, as the problematic or That's restricted right. area, um, you know, as a farm that was selling our flour and, and putting it into pre-rolls, uh, that was something we had to adjust. Um, and we, we had a partner, there's a lab in Colorado that had been an advisor to us and, and they make a wide array of products, but we basically send our flour to them. They put it into pre-rolls, send it right back to us. And, um, and of course you sell it. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's the whole manufacturing, uh, you know, uh, restriction there. When you when you make them yourselves in the facility that you grew it in, they're profitable. When you have to ship them to Colorado, pay for pay for that service and then get it back. Not to mention, yeah, shipping, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the whole time while they're out there, you're hoping that they come back. Yeah, because we've had shipments where they we they're gone. We lost uh, several hundred pre rolls in the mail. One of the last ones, we lost eight hundred pre rolls. So how do these um, pre rolls just get magically lost? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. We have no clue. <laughs> okay. They just disappear. Okay. Yeah. No. Fair it's, enough. It's very convenient, though. Okay. Know? It's just um, it's just one of the, another obstacle to overcome. Sure. And, and plus, like like you were saying, it cuts into your profit margins too. Exactly. Right. It's yeah. an additional cost versus being able to do it here, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because you know. If you if if Texas were to restructure some of the some of the regulations, it could arguably make companies like yours more profitable. Which, if you're more profitable, you could do more good in the community. Right? Absolutely, it, um, it seems like it's almost like it's taxing the local businesses while incentivizing outside businesses to sure. send their products into the market. It, it, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, so let's talk about the industry itself. You, you've been in the industry for several years now. How have you seen it evolve over time? A lot, <laughs> um, right. I, you know, just between who's in the market, what's what are the the hot products, mm-hmm. um, you know, what where do we think things are headed, what what what's up in legislation? I mean, there's been there's been a lot of changes. Like I was saying, we started originally with just being a farm, and it was actually that smokable ban uh, or that whole lawsuit when it first came up that was one of the the impetus to add additional processing and manufacturing, right? Because uh, you know we we were expecting to get top dollar for our smokable products out of the farm and we really didn't need much additional infrastructure to make that happen um but not knowing how that was going to shake out we added the rest um you know i think going from cbd being the only expectation into delta 8 becoming a new thing and then being an accepted thing and like i said i thought it was going to get cut off immediately and it, it didn't it stuck around and same kind of thing with the the hemp derived delta 9 and um yeah, it's, it's definitely been hard to predict what's coming next, what's going to stick around. Um, keeps it exciting for sure. Now, what are your what are your thoughts about some of the ambiguities that's um, essentially been created over the years with the FDA? Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily be the one to, to say I really wish they would tighten up all this stuff and, and regulate us more because I know a lot of people wouldn't want that, yeah. but... I like guidelines. I like playing within the rules that I know. Maybe it's maybe uh, I would rather have more oversight, meaning that we could first guarantee across brands and across products in the market a more consistent, reliable product sure. to consumers. And that's been a common complaint in the mm-hmm. industry, right? It's just a lack of guidance by the FDA. And between 2019 through today, you know, you're looking at ranging anywhere between four warning letters to 21 warning letters, and it varies. And mm-hmm. just this year alone, they've issued quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they haven't issued, I mean, they, they've, they've received word from Congress. They've received word from um, different segments of the, of the government. And still, we're still waiting on some, some more concrete guidance from the FDA. Right. Um, now, do you know of any companies who that you don't have to name, please don't name names on here, but um, <laughs> do you know anybody who's received warning letters? Not personally, no. Not personally. I mean, I've, I've seen the, re- the press releases, but yeah, no. Okay. Um, so I, I've represented a few that have received the warning letters, and um, they're not fun to deal with. So I can tell you that. Um, 
Yeah, we, we try to be, I mean, that's definitely Stephanie's, Stephanie's world, handling all of our language and, and communication and marketing. And, you know, I think that is one of the more frustrating things where it's like we have all of this research about the safety and the efficacy and, you know, alcohol can be advertised the way it is and we can't even, yeah, we have to be so careful about everything we say. Sure, sure. Um, so let's transition into uh, the future of um, Power Biofarms. Um, you're... You said that your company is uh, is you, and it looks like your wife is involved with it as well, right? She is. She so she's been a, a in the medical industry since she graduated from the TCU nursing program. Okay. She's worked in uh, Parkland's various ICUs, but most m- m- for the longest time the medical ICU. And uh, she was a huge impetus for us starting this company as well. And uh, you know, she is still working over there as we've been growing and kind of working to the point where we can bring her over. But it's it's our intention to make her full time as soon as we grow to that point. Yeah. So what's the, what does the future look like for this company and any new initiatives that you guys are considering? We are looking pretty closely at, uh, at trying to compete for a medical license as, uh, it's been recently announced that, that I guess the state is opening up for that. I know it's extremely competitive. Um, but that's kind of been where our, our, you know, our heart and focus has been from the start is, is trying to help people that, that really have the most, uh, to gain from, from the, from the plant and from the products. And, uh, so that's what we'd we'd like to uh, make happen, whether it's this round or, or in the future. Sure. You know, assuming that we we aren't able to get it, we're going to continue to do the same. Like like we talked about, it's the same infrastructure, same operation, and we still can bring some great, very beneficial products to people. Um, I think it's just more of a challenge to communicate, like I said, within the kind of craziness of of the products in the space and the changes in the space, versus being a prescribed product to someone. I think that's like a really compelling, uh, business model, but we definitely can, will continue to help people either way. Okay. Uh, Nick and Stephanie, the, the, uh, any new initiatives down the pipeline for the growth side or the business development strategy side? Um, as far as like the infrastructure wise, we're looking to expand, hopefully in grow rooms and things like that next year, but we're, we're eyes on the prize with that medical license. We really want to get it to where we can help people with what they need. Okay. Same. Yeah, definitely focusing towards that medical license. We definitely, uh, you know, education really matters to us and being transparent Mm -hmm. and sharing this kind of quality info. So we definitely are looking forward to working with uh, physicians, hopefully in the future, in the very near future and hosting some education for them uh, as we continue to strive towards that medical focus. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting talking to the three of you, uh, and from the very start throughout the entire segment, you've you, you've kept on you keep on circling back to um, medical and healthcare. Mm-hmm. And as uh, as an attorney who came out of the healthcare world, falling into cannabis, um, it's kind of music to my ears because um, I, you know you're literally looking at two different. Uh, two very different regulated industries colliding together, mm-hmm. and now they're intertwined and becoming more and more intertwined. Um, well, that's that's awesome. And um, uh, give me one fun fact about you, Colt. Uh, I guess just kind of tie that that medical focus off with a little funny. Uh, so I really thought I wanted to be a surgeon. That was like what when I went to Notre Dame, I really wanted to go do pre med, and then I went and shadowed a surgeon for uh, he was an NFL surgeon. He was, do, he was working on a couple, couple guys that had a Tommy Johns and then uh, an ACL. And I almost passed out and threw up in the operating room, was told to leave. And that's when I realized that, but that might not be it for me, but I think it took that, that kind of a, 
So fun fact though, sorry, that was, I kind of had that in my head before you asked the question. <laughs> that wasn't necessarily answering the question. At Notre Dame, I used to lead the team out with bagpipes. That was a tradition of the team oh, wow. before every game. Okay. So I don't know really how to play them well, but I know how to one, how to play one song okay. Okay. Uh, and that was, yeah. What about you, Nick? One fun um, fact. Fun fact. Um, I don't know about, I'll start with like a fun fact of the future. Next year, I'm looking to be almost 100% grow my own food so I don't have to buy anything from the store. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you truly are a cultivator in other aspects as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. I want to grow for my entire family so that we don't have to go to the store and get that food. I'm, I mean, that's a, probably a different uh, story for a different time. But sure. yeah, I could definitely get to where I, I don't have to buy the food from the store. It's Very just not, cool. not the best food, you know. Very cool. What about you, Stephanie? Oh, I, says, I hate this question, actually, because right. I'm not sure how to answer it. It's kind of so, yeah. tough. It is it kind of tough. It is a it's tough one of those ones you're like, oh, let I me like, think which about one? it. What should I do? Yeah. You know, uh, fun fact about me, I guess. Um, I think I already mentioned it earlier, but, you know, I used to used to get up every day at 3.30 in the morning to prepare to do morning drive radio and wake other people up. Okay. And, and so that's what, uh, something that was a big driver in me leading off my career in marketing is learning the voice of a, how to voice to others. And I guess that's just a fun fact. Not everybody's done morning radio. So <laughs> no, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, um, that really is, uh, the wrap for this particular episode. Um, I really want to thank you all for coming in thank and sharing us. Yeah, not a problem in uh, sharing such great knowledge and such good information. And, you know, as I've always said, this, uh, the purpose of the Sativa segment is really to educate the public and to bring about more awareness in, in the industry. And I think we achieved that today. So oh, this is great. Thank us. you so much for having us. Appreciate you. Not a problem. Okay. Well, um, let's, uh, let's conclude this episode and um, thanks a lot. Thank you.